Hello and welcome to a new four-part podcast by Judith Ankatel and Miriam Gould, made in commemoration of the Remembrance Day for Lost Species. This is Episode 4, The Guests. Welcome to The Fateful Tale of Chesapeake Bay. So far, this podcast series has been about the Chesapeake Bay, about its beauty, its history, its marine ecosystem, and its ecological decline. But inevitably, it's also been about us, Miriam and Judith, and about how this story of an estuary thousands of miles away intersects with our own lives, with our art and our dreams, and our actions. This podcast would not exist without Judith's grief over what has happened and is happening to the Bay. It is about, as Judith has said, the disregarded, the Menhaden, the independent watermen, the flattened seabed, the macroalgae, small organisms that bloom and darken the water, the roots that bind the soil together, giving integrity to the earth. The story of this American estuary resonated with us, and if you've made it this far, it's resonated with you. And now we're here. We have some understanding of how we got here, how the bay's ecology has been decimated, how it is being restored and how the success of this restoration is complicated. Hopeful, but complicated. And that's why we're telling this story, because there is work to be done. Yes, sometimes the destruction of the world's ecosystems and the destruction of the organisms that form these intricate webs of codependence, sometimes this destruction is just too much to bear. And it paralyzes us, and we just don't know what to do. We feel insignificant in the face of this destruction. A tiny speck dwarfed by enormity. But we know better now than we did at the start of these episodes that nothing is insignificant. Just like the spat that clings to an elder oyster or the larvae drifting on the current or a single seagrass blade about to flower, nothing is insignificant. Existence is made of webs and connections, symbiotic relationships, not important things and unimportant things. That's simply not how it works. Nothing is insignificant. So, we need a little motivating, maybe, to be shown that there are things within our grasp that we can do. We are talking about positive, joyful, generous acts of engagement. And we have found just the people to help us with that.
It is my pleasure to introduce you to Jack Badams, who has kindly agreed to come and share his love of nature through the prism of his Instagram stories. And in case you're not familiar with this form of social media, these little video stories have a lifespan of only 24 hours. If you miss them, they are gone. Jack reveals little nuggets of natural science that he observes when out walking on maybe a street, might be in a wood, in a field, or it might be just in the crack in the pavement. Such is his intensity of observation, you might be asking yourself, is this what people see when they're out in the natural world? Welcome to Jack's world. The Instagram stories are a bit of a sideline to Jack's professional life as an ornithologist, a bird ringer, and a researcher for the BBC Spring, Summer, Autumn and Winter Watch programmes. But we shall let Jack speak for himself. Hello. <laughs> How are you? How is your day? Uh, very good, thank you. Yeah, we're just working on um, working on putting together um, Winter Watch at the moment, um, which is very exciting. So, just sending people out across the country to film things and coming up with ideas for what we can uh, get our presenters talking about and all that kind of stuff. So it's always. It's not a real job, really. It's just sitting. <laughs> it's just sitting and researching stuff about animals or talking to people about filming them. Or um, so, yeah. It's it's good. Where did you first start connecting with nature? That's a, that's a question that I can't put my finger on because so birds has always been my thing, um, but it's certainly not limited to birds. But that's certainly how it started, and it's still the strongest part of my affinity with nature is birds but the legend in my family and I don't know I don't know how much of this is true is that my first word was bird and it's probably not true but that's always what's said but certainly what is true is that by the time I was three or so um, I could stand at the back window and identify all the birds that were coming into the garden and I had a little bird book and whatever and my parents neither of them remotely at that point, interested in birds. I've since kind of dragged my family into yeah, this whole yeah. world with me. But my family, uh, my mum and dad at that point, didn't really know what to do with me. They just had this this son who was fascinated with the birds in the garden. And fair play to them. They just kept plying me with bird books. They just kept buying me new bird books, recording all the nature programs that were on TV so I could sit and watch them over and over again and just thought it would go away, this phase. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's a phase lots of children go through. I think lots of children do have this fascination with nature. And it was all self-taught, really. It was all watching things on TV. Um, I was about, I think I was 10 when I joined the local, or my family with me, joined the local bird watching group. And that's when I first really met other bird watchers, like adults who were interested in birds, because up until that point, it had just been me and my own little bubble reading my books or whatever. So... There isn't really a point because I don't remember a time where I wasn't interested in nature. And I very regularly count my blessings that I have found this passion really, really early and then been able to make it my life. Because I do talk to lots of people who um, nature or bird watching in particular is, is a hobby for them and yeah. they have another job you know, to pay the bills or whatever. So, so I am very lucky that I found that really early on and that my parents and my grandparents and indulged it because it's it's led to 
what I do now and hopefully what I can continue doing for the rest of my life. I think being supported by your parents and them sort of encouraging it, even if they didn't get it, that's massive, I, I think. And they yes, did, it was huge. They didn't indulge it. They were, they were receptive to what a three-year-old was doing. They were thinking, well, that's, that's interesting. So they were receptive parents, weren't they? They were kind of yeah. picking and up on your interest. Definitely. And I think, I think you've just said it there, Miriam. It's, um, you know, something that they didn't particularly understand, but they were, you know, they engaged with. And if ever we went on holidays to, you know, caravans or something, they'd look for any kind of exotic bird park or something like that, that they could, anything with birds in it, anywhere they could go that would, would, you know, make me happy like that. They did. And did they take you outdoors? Were were you outdoorsy? Like an outdoorsy family? Particularly my my grandma and granddad, um, I spent a lot of time with them out in local national trust places. Whenever we had free time, it would generally be outdoors, picnics, walking, you know, wandering around lakes, feeding ducks, things like that. So it wasn't wasn't serious outdoorsing. We weren't, you know, hiking across moors or we've we've got into more walking like that as as I've got older. But certainly as a kid, it was just going and sitting around on some grass and having a picnic or then having a short walk through a wood. And it all contributed because it was all how I was able to explore and um, kind of further my experiences with nature and birds. Yeah. Did you grow up in a, were you in a town or in like an urban environment when you, as a kid? So I grew up in a place called Clown, which is spelt like, Spelt like clown, as in a clown, but with an E on the end. Yeah. The, best, the best thing about coming from clown is you can say that you actually went to clown school. Which is <laughs> it's a small, maybe now a small town, kind of between a village and a town uh, in North Derbyshire. So it was quite rural and it was very easy to get out. It's, it's, it's just interesting because Miriam and I are not trying to say anything in relation to, oh, if you've had an outdoors childhood, it's going to lead to you being, we just, it's just, curious and there's no root to this is what I'm trying to say yeah so, I think yeah. that's that's really that's really key is that there is no connecting with nature there's no tie you know I like I've said I'm lucky that I was able to do it from a young age but yeah. you can connect with it at any point and yeah. what was so great over lockdown is that lots of people seem to have connected to it in a brand new way because they were almost forced to look at it or they found a bit of peace and respite in it um and that's there all the time like those feelings are there if you if you'll go out and engage with it but a lot more people seem to notice it then Uh, and like you say there's not one way into it what made you do the instagram stories so i've always been interested in nature and some of my earlier jobs before i got into the tv side of stuff that i do now was um used to be a tour guide and giving information basically So I really like that aspect of it. And what I really like about it is, especially when you're a tour guide and you've got a group in front of you, is the feedback that you get from people and seeing them engage with something. And the great thing about social media is that you can do that on a much bigger scale internationally. It's, you know, I can pick up my phone because I found something interesting on my walk that I found particularly interesting and think other people might find interesting. Mm -hmm. And I can just hit that record button and within five minutes, I've got a little short video. Other times I have more of an idea about something that I'd like to do, um, something that I think people might find interesting Mm. and go out and find it. Sometimes over lockdown particularly, they were a bit more daft and just kind of having a bit of fun. But that's the thing with social media is that it's all a reflection of the person that's doing it and it can feel very authentic and very genuine. And uh, the thing I like most about 
Instagram is this amazing community of nature-minded people that I've got to know now really well and can engage with and people who respond to me and ask me further questions on something I've spoken about. Oh, I think they come over as really fresh. You did the 30-second one as well, which I found, I found that really funny. I really enjoyed that. That, that. that was the most fun I think I've had was doing those. I really enjoyed those. And that was over lockdown when we were all working from home and it was very, I found it very easy to not go outside. Um, because oh, oh. yeah just be, just because when I was in the office I always made an effort to, to go outside at a certain time and have my walk but when I was at home everything kind of changed a bit and I tr- suddenly you know look at the clock and realize it was past lunchtime so the 30 second nature thing was I'm going to do my nature walk all the time you know what one because it's great mentally for me to get out. But then the 30 second nature thing also became another reason for me to go out and do it. Just condensing it down into, I had a a rough rule that no clip should be longer than about three seconds before it jumped to the next one. Okay. I just thought it's, it's, it looked good and it, and it was Mm. kind of bang, 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 one on top of the other. Here's a, and people took the mick out of me and just kind of called it shouting at wildflowers because that's what I tended to do quite a lot was I'd just find a flower and shout its name and then on to the next one. Red Campion. Good name. It's pink. Stock dove. Gold crest. Wild garlic. Look at all these bluebells. So I've just learnt something new. You get the normal pink herb, Robert, but you also get this fresh white one. Look at that. You cannot beat the green of beech trees at this time of year. This sweet chestnut is incredible. Look at the patterns on this. And I found this amazing app a few years ago. I was shown, to it, shown it by a friend, actually, that's called Seek, S-E-E-K. And you download it on your phone. It's free. And it you point it at a flower and it tells you what it is. Yeah, they're amazing. And I, I just found once I'd done it once, I remembered it. Um, and I know other people that don't, that <laughs> have tried it and they yeah, <laughs> and they can't. But I just knew that once, it was like back in the day when somebody had told me what that bird was, I wouldn't forget it. And it was the same with being told by this app what that flower was. I just wouldn't forget it. I think the thing that I'm, I'm getting, the way you're approaching and communicating your engagement with nature is really accessible and it's playful and it's down to earth and it's really human. And like you say, it's a reflection of you. So it's very personal, personable as well. I think so. And I think likening it to TV and, and the producers that are behind the TV programs that are being made, they're all of a certain age. And there's, I'm very aware now that at 27, there's a whole culture below me. Um, and when you start leaving Instagram and going into the realms of TikTok and you see the, 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 the way that those younger people are expressing them, that blows my mind. When you go into the Instagram world, you find this whole world of people in their 20s and early 30s that are really engaging with nature in a way that you don't see on TV. And that's just because the people behind the TV stuff, that's not how they engage with nature. If it's all out there for the different people to find, um, because you know we do all enjoy the big tv nature programs because they are just so fantastic but sometimes you just want a much more down-to-earth way of engaging with nature would you say that the your instagram stories had an intention to impart information there is but it's not really any it's me seeing something when i'm out on a walk remembering the time i was told that and how amazing i found it and then thinking well this is probably something you know i could give that experience to other people 
Um, so one I've been doing recently a couple of times about how to read trees. Yeah. And how trees grow. Yeah. And how many branches they have on either side of them can help you point south. Yep. I loved it. Um, yeah. And I got that from a, a book. You know, I'm not, I didn't invent that. I got that from a fantastic book by Tristan Gooley. Um, but I remember reading it. And then when I was out and about looking at it, I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And then I thought, well, my way of sharing that with people is I can take my phone out of my pocket and I can just record a video explaining that. I still get messages from people saying, oh, that's never left me. And I constantly, you know, I'm constantly pointing it out to people when I'm on walks. So it's, it's, it's no deeper than just thinking that I think people would like this because I really enjoyed it. I'm going to show you an easy way to tell which way is south by looking at a tree. Look at this tree, look at the shape of the branches. You'll notice that the branches on this side of the tree are a lot more horizontal. The branches on this side of the tree are curving up. That's because the branches on this side of the tree are facing north, so they've got to curve up to try and find the light, whereas this way is south, so the branches can come out horizontal because they've got the full force of the sun beaming down on them when it's nice weather. What about when you did the oak tree and the blackberries? Was that, did you just come across them? So... Where I live in Bristol, uh, I live very near Clifton Suspension Bridge, walk over the bridge and I get into Ashton Court, which is a, a deer park that's managed by the council. And it's got two enclosures of deer, one red deer, one fallow deer. And most mornings before I start work, I go for a walk out there and I go into the red deer enclosure. A couple of weeks ago when I did that video, all the deer were out and wandering around. And I'm also very interested in the whole Within nature, there's this whole rewilding movement and grazing animals being used on lots more conservation projects and all that kind of stuff. So I've been reading a lot of that. And one of the things that really stands out is when we're talking about tree planting and when we're talking about using tree guards. But actually, if we just let the land naturally regenerate, what protects those young oak trees from being grazed is brambles. And I was in the deer park and the deer were all out and they were quite close to me. And it, I, I was watching them all grazing on the grass and all the grass was very, very short, apart from in the scrubby patches. Mm. And it was just, I'd not thought about recording that video at all, but it was just when I looked over to these scrubby patches and I saw these little trees popping out with the deer right there, it was then I just thought, this is a really good example. And that, that phrase just came into my head, just the thorn is the mother of the oak. Well, there it is. It's, it's right there. My favourite nature sayings is that the thorn is the mother of the oak. Now, on the face of it, you might not have any idea what that means, but I'm gonna show you here with this little patch of brambles. So I'm still in the deer park. I've left the deer. They're just over through those trees there. So having this enclosure, although it's a large enclosure, is a very high density uh, of an artificial herd of deer. So it's very difficult for trees to regenerate. If they want trees to grow, they generally have to put them in these tree guards so that the deer don't nibble them when they're very small. But there is something that does that naturally, as you may have guessed, it's brambles. And you can see here that this, okay, it's not an oak, it's a hawthorn, but it's been able to escape the browsing pressure of deer because it's grown up through this bramble here. And that's what they say about oak trees. I think it's an old French forestry uh, saying. Uh, and basically, when the jays are going around with the acorns, they'll often plant them inside these little dense patches of brambles. And the oak, which is a very slow growing tree, can grow up through the brambles with its own natural tree guard before it comes out big enough to sustain any deer browsing pressure. So the thorn is the mother of the oak. Great saying. It was something that I wanted, a classic thing that I found really interesting when I first read it. And I just love that phrase. I just, there was something that when we're talking about the rawness and this sort of direct communication, 
of like your Instagram stories and, and the way you communicate your engagement with nature, you know, actually we're doing this podcast about something that's really far away. And so this episode, we really want it to sort of become about the listener and what they can do within their own lives in a very day-to-day way without it being a massive deal Mm. or, you know, but something that it just becomes a part of their life. I guess when you're talking about not having these big, like, uh, swish productions, because I think you watch something like that and it's entertainment and you don't immediately connect it with your own life. But watching something like your Instagram stories, you know, I'm instantly like, oh, I could go out and see something like this. Yeah, that's that's not something I'd, I'd thought about, actually, but I, I 100% agree. By making it more relatable, it makes it seem a lot more attainable. Right. The easiest thing to do is to engage with nature because it's there, it's free, it's all around. And what I hope that my stories and certainly some some other fantastic people on Instagram that I follow and, and know highlight is if we can show that there is exciting stuff out there for people to see learn about right outside their door or in their garden then yeah that's a really nice thing the the pigeon (laughs) i love the pigeon the slow motion pigeon the moment i saw that i just thought i'm so happy we're talking to you because you know we take pigeons for granted all the time and they're just they're seen as a pest or flying rats or whatever but they're an amazing animal that's managed to live alongside us who just gobble everything up in our yeah they're extraordinary and so I used to do expeditions where I was a, a scientist on these expeditions and we would have school groups that came along with us and I would do bird ringing um, sessions bird ringing for people who don't know is where we catch and tag birds for scientific purposes um, with little metal rings on their legs but we'd be sat around waiting to check the nets I my one of my conversation starters is I would say what's the best and what's the worst bird without any kind of quantification i just want your best and worst bird and worst bird would always be pigeon and i would say you're not allowed that in my made-up game you're (laughs) not allowed that because any animal that's managed to live successfully alongside what we've done to the environment and what we've done to the planet cannot be classed as you know the worst of anything and that slow motion video was a really good example of just looking at something closely and just using that very accessible technology with that very accessible bird, got this incredible video of this, this pigeon flying towards, I was in London, so it came to my hand to feed. And just the detail of bird flight and how its wings move and its feathers on the end, it was stunning. It's, it's, it's what I call the disregarded, you know, the, the gull, the, the pigeon, the weeds in the cracks in the pavement, that we just walk past them. And... But it's just degrees of... Awareness. One of the great things about that 30 second nature videos that I did over the the spring lockdown was people going, I can't believe how many things you've been able to see just from your door. And I think that's only because I was showing, I I was tallying them almost with the format of the video, just going this, 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 um, that it really brought home to people. Crikey, there's actually a lot of stuff that this guy's seen on his, you know, half an hour lunch walk or whatever. Can you talk about? Uh, what you might personally do for the environment? So personally, I suppose I suppose the biggest thing I've done in, in recent times is been around the whole diet thing. Okay, yeah. Um, and I think 
I think now with the state that the, the planet is getting in, I think we have to, it's great doing the small things, but we also have to look at some quite big things. We have to look at ourselves and make some quite big choices. Now, I had been thinking about doing the whole vegetarian thing for a while, but just to what a better phrase, chickened out of doing the whole full vegetarian thing. So I decided I was going to set myself this rota that I couldn't eat meat Monday to Friday, but I could on Saturdays and Sundays. And for the first few months, that's pretty much what I stuck to and I ate meat on Saturdays and Sundays. But then by only eating it those two days, I found that I'd stopped buying it. So it then became more of now my general rule is I don't cook meat at home. So that's maybe the biggest change I've made. And it was off the back of when Extinction Rebellion a couple of years ago or a year or so ago, were doing really big things. And I just thought I need to do more. You know, I'm, I'm towing the line of nature and everything. And we know that having a very meat heavy diet is one of the things that's having the biggest impact on the planet. Um, I thought I've got to eat less meat and I've got to eat, if I am going to eat meat, I've got to eat better quality meat. And I did. Lots of people think the choice is either eating loads of meat and becoming a full-on vegan or vegetarian. And I think I just spelled out what I'd done and people went, oh, actually, that's really achievable. By, by making up your own middle ground rules between meat eating and vegetarianism, it becomes a lot less scary. Oh, I believe you're doing a podcast. <laughs> yes, I am with a, with a friend of mine called Roddy, Roddy Shaw. And we thought... There are some nature podcasts out there, but we thought there was a gap for people talking about nature the way we talk about nature. We have made a podcast called How Many Geese, and it's, it's called How Many Geese because we have hypothetical scenarios within the podcast where we discuss how, how many of X animal you could take in a fight. And that's an example of talking about nature in a way that... <laughs> You know, you might not often see nature being spoken about, but it gives us a chance to it gives us a chance to break down the animal and talk about its size and its abilities and its evolution and all of its traits. And then I put the question to Roddy, how many could he actually take in a fight? Uh, and then we, we talk about we talk about all sorts of other things. That's, that's just one segment. Basically, the, the format is, is we have the we have the fight section as a, a kind of smaller middle breather space between two larger subjects. We the main subjects were we did about poison and then we did about Australia having a war against emus and and China having a war against sparrows basically and then the 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 China example is really quite extraordinary where they wiped out pretty much every sparrow um, in China and the ecological collapse that came off the back of it led to one of the well it was the greatest ecological unbalancing we think we've ever seen really and the pests just shot up and it was yeah a massive example of shooting yourself in the foot and then they ended up buying a load of sparrows from Russia and bringing them over to try and readjust the, the balance. So hopefully early in 2021, we'll be, we've recorded the whole bunch and I just need to sit down and edit them. If, you, um, if there was one thing that you could do for the environment, should you have the power, what would it be? Ooh, like that's a good question. I think the most powerful thing you can do or would be able to do if you had like a magic wand or a genie or something that could do that is I wish everybody was i just wish everybody cared the same and you you care for it by being aware of it so i guess i wish more people were aware of it and it's easy to think in our little bubbles and social media is so guilty of this is locking you in or surrounding yourself in this bubble of people that think broadly similar things to you and i think in general let's 
focus on the UK. In general, the state of nature in the UK is pretty poor now, but it seems pretty hopeful going forward. And I think it's going well. And then I step out of my bubble and I talk to you know, some of my friends that aren't interested in wildlife or nature at all. And it really crashes it home just how much some people, it's not on their right, they don't care. And they're not, they're not willing to, you know, it's not something they enjoy is, is educating themselves about it or whatever. And I think if I could have one magic wand, I would wish that everybody cared the same about it as I do, I suppose. Or, and that would lead us to a lot, a lot better place for wildlife. And yeah, I think and on a really practical, uh, nature education should be compulsory. And then Yeah, well, there, there certainly was talk about the natural history GCSE a few, I can't remember whether it was a year ago now, but they're, they're, it seemed to have been approved that they were bringing in a natural history GCSE, right. which is a brilliant big step in the right direction. But when you're looking at the the way that young people seem to have taken the whole climate thing upon their shoulders basically and are driving it forward that gives me immense hope that the younger people coming through will engage with it a lot better than perhaps you know and they've got an energy about them as well it's so heartening and rousing to see when when some of those big demonstrations were going on it seems like people are getting it or enough people are getting it for it to break through into everybody else's consciousness now I should like to tell you about our guest, the Dormouse that Roared, who, due to hibernational inclinations, is not available until the spring. Dormouse is one of those creatures that has an idea and can run with it. And Dormouse, even though in semi-hibernation, has a burrow filled with banks of computer screens monitoring environmental stories on a weekly basis. And posting these stories on Twitter since 2018, Dormouse gives visibility to environmental news, both good and bad. The twofold intention supports environmental organisations of any size, publicising their activities, spreading the word. And depending on what's live, um, it, it could be supporting activism, it could be supporting collaborations between groups, communities, lawmaking, advocacy, tree planting. Equal publicity is given to environmental dark spots, so it could be drawing attention to law-breaking, uh, drawing attention to over-exploitation of resources, waste, pollution. No story is too big or too small in either the good or the bad. Dormouse first developed this idea of an interactive news map, realising that the Fridays for Future movement would be supported by mapping their, their growing global presence. Each school strike had a place on the map. Fellow school strikers could see themselves on the map and be affirmed by their collective might, their collective power. In case you're unfamiliar with the Fridays for Future movement, it started with Greta Thunberg striking outside the Swedish parliament in June 2018. At first she was alone, but fellow school strikers joined her in Sweden and the movement gained momentum as it spread around the world, sparking an international awakening as a global climate movement. So now, two and a half years on, Dormouse has a daily broadcast service for environmental news. 
and 5,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm going to give you some current examples from this week, from the week before Christmas 2020. Uh, And one of them, Dormouse has mapped the Norwegian government giving permission for the opening of 136 new areas for oil exploration in the Barents and Norwegian Sea. Despite this being an area that holds some of the highest densities of the whales in the world. So if you find the map, click on the skull and crossbones mapping pin in the middle of the sea off Norway and you will be linked to the source. And in this same week, just before Christmas 2020, Dormouse maps and locates a community organisation called Dobbany Fields in East London and it is joined with two other community greening organisations which, as Dormouse notes, offers a green corridor opportunity. Dormouse is open to receiving any of your environmental stories. It's easy to find on Twitter at the Dormouse that roared. I don't think you'll forget that. And the derivation of the name Dormouse that Roared comes from the satirical Peter Sellers film of 1959 entitled The Mouse That Roared, The Tiny Pitted Against the Mighty. So I bow in respect to the humble Hazel Dormouse and the belief that when it is time to roar, we roar. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Sherelle Harding, who has kindly agreed to come and talk to us about her experiences of taking her love of the outdoors and sharing it with a broader community. Sherelle is a youth worker who has a secret life as a weekend hiker. But not content with solitary excursions into the natural world, she enticed her friends and family to join her on Walks with Good Views. And so Steppers UK was born. Sherelle describes Steppers as a community organisation to promote diversity outdoors. Steppers is kind of a lockdown spin-off. Sherelle converted her love of walking into an open invitation to the underrepresented black and Asian communities to join her in walking and experiencing the outdoors. And if anyone is wanting to join one of her hikes, it's well signposted and easy to find. It's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Each walk is given a difficulty rating. So if you're a newcomer, go for the easy ones. Sherelle, hello. Lovely to see you. Hello. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Oh, we're really well, thank you. I picked up, you know how you don't like the word hiker? Yeah, it's, I don't know if it's that I don't like it because I do use it on our social yeah. media and stuff like that. But I'm very conscious that that word can be, I don't know, a little bit intimidating or I don't think some people really understand what it is. And I got that from talking to friends and family and my mum, for example, do you want to go for a hike? <laughs> I think a hike sounds a bit more 
uh, a bit harder than if you just say, oh, do you want to go for a walk with some good views? So <laughs> I'm really conscious of terminology that's used. And then I discovered the Lake District and Peak Districts. And I was like, oh, I can be a hiker too. <laughs> to be honest with you, only this year I've kind of, now I'm, I've kind of launched Steppers and I'm a bit more in touch with all the outdoors people and the outdoors organisations. Yeah. I'm still very new to it. Although I've been walking and stuff by myself for quite some time, the outdoors is still new, so I'm still learning as I go along. So all these words, I think you don't necessarily need the fancy terms because I didn't. No. We also do different walks at different difficulties so that people can kind of build their way up or if they want to just come out for a little stroll, that's yeah. absolutely fine as well. Do you, with the maps, You do? did you say you really like maps? So I, I did it until I did a, a map skills course this year. And I don't know, it just spark something inside of me so now I'm a bit of a kind of map geek and in fact I always used to find myself still to this day I'm always on Google Maps browsing and seeing where there's like local greenery around where I can visit to and that's where I first actually came across AONBs so the, the area of outstanding natural beauty challenge actually um was a personal challenge of my own that I started um maybe two years ago two three years ago and I came across those from being on Google Maps and I was thinking, what are these these areas? And it just said A-O-N-B. And then I'd done a Google search and from that I found out what they were and found out how many there were. And I thought, oh, great. I'm just going to, really random, I thought, I'm just going to go and visit all of them. So when I launched Steppers, I thought, what a perfect opportunity. I've already been to some of them, so I can already lead walks there. Um, and what a great opportunity to just bring people to places that I'd been and getting them to experience it as well. How and when did you find yourself first connecting with nature? So I think when I think back, I first found myself connecting with nature when when I was in primary school. Um, and I'd say that was the start because I remember going to Wales to a place called Place Dolly Mock. Um, I'd been there in year six, year seven, year eight and year nine, I think. So I went four times, but they were just kind of one off experiences. Um, and I went back when I had the opportunity. And I also knew about my local parks. There's a really big park in Coventry called Kumabi, um, a popular place that if you're local, you'd go to. So that's where I'd say I kind of had my first connection. But it wasn't until I was an adult and I went back to Dolly Mock as a member of staff that I kind of had that moment of oh this is this is this is quite good this is something that I might actually want to start taking up in my adult life um I'd climbed a, I climbed a mountain when I was there and I think it just made me remember those experiences being in primary school and I think I just always felt peace whenever I was outdoors and in nature so I think that's what encouraged me to continue it um, when I came back from that um trip that thing of like feeling that peace and that enjoyment of being in nature because I had quite an urban upbringing and I remember having little moments of being outside as a child in expansive nature and suddenly feeling very different. Yeah so I was a city girl always have been a city girl and I think I suppose I only realise this now as an adult but actually we live really fast-paced lives all the time Um, and now that I've started to go to more rural parts of the UK, it kind of makes me realise that, wow, for all of 20-something years of my life, I all I knew really was traffic, buildings, noise, pollution. And now I kind of, I love the escape because I think after living these busy lives, we do need that time to just 
kind of reconnect and just have a bit of kind of silence if anything and what about the difference between going on your own and going in a group because it's a very different kind of enjoyment definitely no definitely I think I enjoy them both for different reasons obviously the solitude is nice and I think as I mentioned earlier I can be a bit more experimental if I don't want to take a certain path or I want to go off route I can do that because I've only got myself that I need to kind of look after and that Joe, you know, I mean that's come over time building my confidence understanding um routes and maps and those kind of things but equally I love just being able to share experiences with other people it's that's interesting because I, I would go with the being on my own if I was to be absolutely honest one of the great things about um with the group is that when you're exposing people to the outdoors who may have never done that before the group is their first step to that and I think what's really important and one of the reasons I think that I like to do it is it's about um, equipping people with the skills and confidence so that they can then do that in their own personal life and make walking a recreational part of their life. That's a really, really nice point. So I enjoyed the fact that it's a group activity. I think given that hiking is something that's new to me, it has that element that I can just kind of not really have to think about things too much. Um, knowing that Sherelle's just kind of mapped out the route and she knows where she's going. Amazing! I know that's just like a generalised word, but I've, I've loved it. But to do it with like-minded people has been fantastic and it's a beautiful day for it as well. You set up Steppers this year. So officially, Steppers was launched this year, June 2020. But I was actually out walking with friends before. So, in fact, the idea actually came to me two years ago. I just used to go out with friends and encourage some friends and family to go out walking. In my head, I was going, oh, you had this amazing lockdown spin-off idea and all that kind of stuff. But in fact, you had the idea as on a, on a sort of a smaller scale with saying to just saying to friends, shall we go out for what? Yeah, but I do think that lockdown played a massive part in that because we're in a period of time where the year is going terrible for a lot of people. A lot of places are closed, but the outdoors are open. I mean, you can't close the outdoors. So I think I used that opportunity to get people outdoors because you couldn't go anywhere people were more open to okay I'll go for a walk instead (laughs) what was the first walk with steppers like so yes the first walk official walk with steppers we visited Shropshire Hills I'd never been there before myself whereas usually when I'm leading a group I'd always go there first to just kind of make sure I knew the route but this one happened kind of really last minute it was the first walk I've had a few people interested. So I kind of just jumped on that and thought, okay, great, let's go. Um, And it was fantastic. We had the most perfect weather. And I think in that moment, I think I had that feeling of, wow, this is actually something that people enjoy. And I can actually see more people um, getting interested in. A lot of the people that are coming to Steppers now, I haven't met before. These are people that have found me via Instagram, through hashtags, for example, we use the hashtag diversity outdoors, or perhaps someone knows a friend that knows a friend that knows of steppers. And I think that's what the great thing is, it's meeting people that I haven't met before. That's that's exciting. They've really come exciting. Along. Yeah. 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 Tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm sort of getting a sense seeing the people that you had been inspired by and like looking around, and it feels like this diversity outdoors. Is it like growing in movement at the moment? Like obviously it's 
pretty overdue but like does it feel like it's got some momentum now definitely definitely I think this year in more in particular we see more of a growth you've got some amazing groups out there you've got groups like Black Girls Hike a group called We Go Outside Too I think there's a group up north called Mosaic Um, and there's loads of um, groups and I think now with things like Instagram and hashtags we're able to kind of really all kind of find each other which which is great because it kind of like you said it keeps that momentum growing and I think it's given me that kind of understanding that this is something that people want to do and have just felt underrepresented for a long time and now we're all kind of finding each other. My personal experiences of being in the outdoors have been generally positive. Mm. I do have friends and other people that have had negative experiences. And I think one thing that's really important is that we, the outdoors itself, we know the outdoors isn't racist. But I think <laughs> what we have to understand is that people have limited access to the outdoors and that there are groups of people that are underrepresented. So, for example, walking, it's very much seen as this um, activity that white males do and they go out conquering mountains, that kind of thing. And I think that image, it can often make people feel that that activity isn't for them. So I think the outdoors is something that has to have more than one approach. Different cultures, different religions, different people enjoy the outdoors in different ways and I think that has to be accepted that's why there are safe spaces for people now just so that they can explore the outdoors in a comfortable way that's that's suitable for them and I think that it just everyone just has to accept that there's different approaches and everyone's going to do that differently yeah 100% I mean I think we are hopefully as a culture learning more and more that representation is just really important that if you're yeah, not seeing absolutely. someone who looks like you doing something, then you're less, much less likely to do it yourself. I, as a white passing person, might think, but the outdoors is for everyone. It's like, that's yeah. not that's not just naturally going to feel like that for everyone. Yeah, just having different approaches to the outdoors so that everyone has a route to be able to access it. Mm. We're also looking to grow and support people that are newly arrived into the country as well which I think would be really good because there's a lot of people that are newly arrived to uh, England and probably will never go to a Peak District or Lake District in their lifetime. Mm. So to be able to provide that opportunity is something that we're hoping to develop next year. That's such a good idea. I'm looking forward to do it again. Like it's, it's very amazing for me. And first time, yeah? Uh, I didn't get that chance to do it um, in my country or maybe I didn't have that time, you know? I didn't know anybody like coming here, um, but I feel like I've met like friends and people that I'll be in touch with, and really looking forward to the next one. It's been it's just been a beautiful day in lots of different ways. Going back to your point about representation, it's so important because now people are seeing the visuals and seeing oh okay they may not have ever seen a black woman or a black male hiking before or a woman in a hijab hiking and if you hashtag hiking on Instagram and scroll through your feed it's very likely you're going to come across someone that is black or black or Asian and that kind of triggers oh maybe this is something that I could also do or maybe this is something I've never tried before but I'd be interested in it in at least giving it a go once. Mm. One of the things that I've kind of realized from my own personal experiences is that the more that you kind of become exposed to nature the more it kind of gives you a 
an interest in other areas such as science and geology and all those things. So I think in turn, exposing more Black and Asian people to the outdoors exposes them to having an interest in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. So I think is that another reason for like taking young kids out there because it might open up a whole like other things that they might be interested in for the rest of their lives. Absolutely, especially um, young black black children who are often kind of stereotyped into certain careers that they're kind of perceived to excel in, i.e. sports and music. Mm-hmm. It can be um, difficult sometimes to say that, oh, you could also be um, a success in this area. So I think exposing them to these particular fields from young, but not saying, oh, this is about science and this is about geography, yeah. but just naturally letting that being exposed to them. And then over time, they might be like, oh, I do have an interest in rocks because once on a walk, they were speaking about limestone and that kind of got them interested in that. So there's so many things that can come from just going on one hike. It's sort of like soft, imperceptible education kind of thing, isn't it? They just sort of <laughs> yeah. pick, it, pick it up. I think it's really important to build off one-off experiences from school. <clears throat> and I recognise this from my past because often enough schools, you'll go on your one residential trip where you stay over for maybe four or five nights you'll do rock climbing and those kind of things but then you'll go back to the city and that would be it it's kind of like a tick box thing that you do at the end of your school yeah. before you leave school primary school for example mm. some people might go on to do Duke of Edinburgh but that's only if that's exposed to you yeah I don't remember being I don't remember hearing about Duke of Edinburgh until I was an adult and thinking oh I didn't know that I could do that at school mm. so I think Next year as well, we're definitely going to try and work with schools to build off those one-off experiences. It doesn't even have to be taking a a residential trip to halfway across the country all the time. It could be your local park and just being creative with how you use it. A lot of young people, they they like parks. That's where they're hanging around a lot of the time. There's something about the outdoors anyway. I I can't put my finger on it, but it's clearly something that people like. Everyone just uses it differently. To not say that there's a good and a bad way of using the outdoors is one of the things I think that you were saying earlier. It's like, yeah, doing it the right way. (laughs) You've got to like, and I think that's really important is broadening that. Yeah, I like to, especially when I'm out walking by myself, I have like my speaker and I'll find an area on a hill or something like that. Um, Making sure that no one's around. I'm not disturbing anybody and I'll play my music and I love it. But I have had experiences where I've been walking, I think I was in a forest and I had someone walk past me for perhaps 10 seconds and I had my music playing. It wasn't loud, but I was kind of met with a bit of kind of hostility. Um, And that was a little bit frustrating. I kind of did let it slide, but it kind of then made me realise like everyone enjoys the outdoors differently. I'm not disturbing you. The music's not loud, but because my approach wasn't how... They had probably they experienced the outdoors themselves. It was kind of almost as if, like that, like we spoke about earlier, that that space wasn't for me to enjoy in that way. Right. There's no rule book on how the outdoors is is supposed to be explored. Mm. If you're not disturbing anybody and you're looking after it, I just think you should be welcome, welcome into all different ways. I read somewhere <laughs> that you, you some that you sing sometimes with on the walks with the groups, and is that? Just lot, probably because I'm always singing so probably and I don't even realize but um 
again, in my list of many ideas, I do want to try and incorporate music in some way, shape or form. So at the moment, I always carry like a mini speaker. And we just, like I said, it's not blazing music, but we do have a nice little vibe going on while we walk in. Um, so I am looking at other ways that we can kind of incorporate that, whether it's, I don't know, a live performance on the top of Snowden or something yeah. like that. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> do it, do it. <laughs> yeah. We'll look back in a few years' time when I've done that and I'll be like, wow, that was actually possible. Sherelle that they need specialist clothes to do this? I think that a lot of these walks can be done in like normal trainers for example. Um, I do think for safety there is some equipment that is needed but this can be purchased at, at a different cost. You've got some really expensive ones and then you've got kind of cheaper shops. You've got shops like Decathlon for example who are used and to be honest that shop was my first experience of buying anything hiking related. It was the first place I brought my um hiking sticks and my hiking bag and that's what kind of made me feel like oh maybe this is this is something that I, I want to do long term yeah. it's a it's a really good point because if people think that they can't go hiking because they can't afford to buy the the um the specialist hiking then that's actually going to to put a barrier in front of people doing it so it's actually a really yeah. really good point that you can actually you can you can go somewhere that's affordable and I think one of the things as well, like I've read, um, I don't remember where, or conversations have come up that one of the barriers is about finances. And I, I do agree with that to an extent, but there are black and Asian people out there that do have money. So, do you know what I mean? That's, it's kind of like, you think it's, it's just exposure, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about your GoFundMe page. What? So you that's already set up. So what is it you're hoping that that's going to, you're going to raise money for what for that? So we've set up a GoFundMe page, which we are looking to raise funds to support our challenge to visit all 46 areas of outstanding natural beauty. The money that's raised there will go towards supporting transport, accommodation, staffing any equipment that's needed for people because there are some of the locations that we will do that are the difficulty of the walks are a little bit higher so some of the equipment that might be needed are things like walking sticks walking boots maps for example so we really just want to be able to equip people with those skills that they can use during our trips but then also be able to have so that they can continue using those in their personal time Um, We're hoping as well in the future to uh, raise some funds so we can actually get a minibus as well. So we can actually specifically take people from the city, from a meeting point, for example, and drive to the Peak District, which is only about an hour and a half away from where I'm located. These kind of funds that are raised will go towards supporting that. We've recently received funding off um, an outdoors organisation called Outkit, Mm -hmm. as well as um, funding from the British Science Association to deliver some of these walks as well. So I think as exciting as it is to go to these places, there's also an element of kind of fitness. And we'll also be kind of looking at um, using like measuring tools to see how people feel when they're in the city and then comparing it to when they are outdoors and enjoying the rural parts of the UK so there's yeah there's definitely physical and mental kind of benefits that we're going to be looking at alongside just being in the Isle of Wight for example. What do you do on a personal level that you consider to be consciously environmental? So I I have an allotment which I've had for about three years now which I absolutely love 
And I think the more that I've been doing that, the more that I've definitely become more environmentally conscious. Mm. Uh, to the point now, I walk down the street and I'll see litter and I'll have a feeling of like, oh, inside of me. <laughs> like, And I think all these feelings have only come because I've been more exposed to the outdoors and nature and taking care of outdoors. Just that feeling of growing your own food from seed to, to fruit, vegetable, it definitely just makes you more conscious. I know, I know what you're saying, Sherelle, and it's really lovely because what you're saying is the allotment raises your kind of your connection to the earth and it's making you environmentally conscious, but it's in kind of like a more experiential way. I would say that the allotment is um, doing something that is environmental because you're removing yourself from buying your vegetables that have traveled from 200 mm. miles from the north. And yeah, yeah so absolutely. It's really inspiring. And it's because you three have not gone, oh, I'm going to do something for the environment. What you've said is, I'm going to do something. And it turns out to be that it's really connected with environmental stuff. And also, I think it's about building a conversation as well. So it's kind of like looking at what can I do for the environment, but in a more of a, a rounded or a coming in from the side kind of way, as it were, rather mm. than going, do this, yeah. do this, do this. Your three stories talk about three people who've just done stuff, you know, and it's 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 genuinely, yeah. genuinely inspiring. Sherelle, I love it. I love it. Um, and each thing has come from like, it's very personally and it represents who you are as a person and what Jack does represents who he is as a person and so it's very genuine and I think that's how we've sort of done this podcast so we are not science people we're artists but we've made a science podcast so I think the sort of the whole thing for me is all about you don't have to be the expert you can yeah. just like engage with something because you genuinely care about it and just that can that's enough yeah I agree I think you made a lovely point about it not being a direct focus on the environment but like I love the when you said about going around the sides almost <laughs> it is and I think it's the same when you speak about not being an expert like you can just love something and then following on from that you're actually supporting the environment you're supporting science and all these other things that come after it so I think that's a really lovely way of saying it one of the things that I think Miriam and I both were very um, taken by was a, a quote from a, um, a poet called Emily Dickinson. And she said in one of her lines is, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. What she's saying is if you come in and you absolutely blast people with the truth, but she says, tell it slant. So that's where you're coming in from <laughs> sides like yeah. that. And you can keep the you keep the conversation building because you haven't actually gone whack. You know, you're going to have all the truth. You're going to ask me that hard question, though, haven't you, that I haven't answered? <laughs> if you had the power to make one change better for the environment, what would you do? Based on just what we've spoken about today, yeah. it would probably be just to make sure that everybody has an experience of the great outdoors. Because I think following on from that, so much more could come from it and by the great outdoors I do mean the uh, lake districts and Scotland and these places that are really different from city life yeah because like I said the outdoors you can go to your local parks and those kind of things and it's great mm -hmm. but there is definitely a different feeling that comes from being on top of a mountain or being in an area where for miles you're actually not hearing anything mm. 
So I think, again, it's an approach to environmental causes because it just makes you more conscious. And I know I keep using that word. It's because it's the best word that I can use to describe that feeling of feeling at one. (laughs) That makes sense. And then in turn from that, you care more about the world that you live in. There was a little quote that that's just right which just said how can you love and protect something you don't know it's Mic like drop. A, I mean <laughs> to be fair you said it and then I just said someone's quote but yeah I think that is that is it isn't it recording hi judith hi well it's our last one what a glorious mission it's been <laughs> do you know what i wanted to i wanted to tell you miriam it was it's really yeah. cool and you know we've we've been having in these podcasts every now and then there's a bit of serendipity and this piece of good news comes up well there's, there's another one here and this episode four is coming out on january the first mm-hmm. first day of 2021 and the UN have declared that the decade starting on January the 1st, 2021, will be the UN Decade on Ecosystem Restoration. Wow. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So it's another piece of serendipity. This will be a serious push towards uh, seeing our ecosystems in, in their entirety, not in, as, as it was with the Menhaden fish. Yeah not in their individual parts. They're a small example, but it's going to be something that the UN will be supporting, speaking about. So well, that's brilliant. Yeah. I am so fascinated by ecosystems in general yeah. and how, you know, things interconnect. Yes. Uh, and it just seems that throughout the making of this, we keep coming across things in the news that connect very directly with what we're talking about. I think what what I didn't know, and I think what we didn't know, is that seeing it in its entirety was a very significant part of it. And because we're not, you know, the experts, um, in a way, we kind of we we kind of have fallen into this gathering of information and this understanding. Mm. Um, well, I mean, you mentioned the expert thing. I wanted to maybe clarify because yeah. when we were talking to Sherelle uh we were talking about how how we'd made this podcast as artists not as scientists yeah and that we are not scientific experts and that that's you know it's okay for us to make this podcast um not being the expert and that that is something to be celebrated but of course we couldn't be making this without the scientific experts we dedicate this whole thing to them which is something that you did explicitly in episode three so yes yes completely agree this this series of podcasts would not exist without the starting point with Callum Roberts and I think at the beginning of the podcasts, and certainly at the beginning when I'm talking about, you know, the quote about artists scream, scientists can't, because it was it was expressing my uh, my grief at the decline in the natural world. But mm. what we found as we've moved through these, you and I have spoken and we've done our research, and actually we've come to 
less of a, a screaming and more a, a more measured, moderate. And this is going into the um, Emily Dickinson's tell all the truth, but tell it slant. And I think mm. we've actually found a, a sensibility around this. And it links very much into this notion, kind of like a well-known one, which is the the building the conversation. This building the conversation on a really concrete level. It could literally yeah. be you're talking to the person that you, you live with. It, you're talking to your children, to your grandparents, to somebody on the street. It links into the things that Sherelle and Jack and Dormouse have said about the more aware you are, the more you know about your environment, the more likely you are to care for it. Yeah. And we've talked a lot, especially with Sherelle, about terminology and how important that is. Hearing the phrase building a conversation, it's quite abstract. You've given so many concrete examples of that. But there's an, there's another concrete example of that, isn't there, Judith? We've got a really interesting concrete example, which is that the there's the Bristol Hot Topics group of the University of the Third Age who are going to use these podcasts as discussion sources for their January and February um, discussion on environmental issues. If you're thinking, I don't know what they mean about building a conversation, <laughs> just talk to people in your yeah. own life. That's it. Yeah, and I think what was great about talking to Jack and Sherelle and hearing about Dormouse's work, what's come up over and over again is that there is no one way to engage with the environment yes. or to to be in the outdoors or, you know, all these things. There's What did Sherelle say? She said, the outdoors is open. Yes. You can't close the outdoors. It's locked. Yes, exactly. And Jack said something very similar about the easiest thing to do is to engage with nature. And, and something that I always feel, and I'm very surprised that it's not part of everyone's life, is that we are also part of nature as human animals. So this notion that nature is something outside of us that we have to connect with, well, we do because of how we've set up our lives. We all belong there. Yes. We just have to find our way of belonging. Yes, what, one thing that comes up nicely is that Jack had, he had an, uh, an early inclination towards yeah. really liking birds. And that's probably just, that's Jack. That's how Jack rolled. <laughs> yeah. um, but then his parents were receptive. So, but what, what we're saying from talking about this and talking to other people is that there is no one route to being connecting yeah. with nature. And Sherelle's a lovely example and she's a really nice contrast to Jack. So I, I think this is a really important point that if people are thinking, oh, you know, I've, I've lost, I've, I've missed the opportunity. I, I, I didn't have an outdoorsy childhood. Nope. Anybody can at any point pick up on this. You know, and then that leads to uh, what almost all of us have said at some point is that if you are aware of it, if you are connected to it, then you feel invested in it and you care about it. Yes. And that then will lead you to be more environmentally engaged, even if that doesn't, you know, that doesn't have to mean going out on marches or becoming a vegan. What I love about this, these interviews is that it shows that there's this there's middle ground that you can make. And Jack talks about that. You can find your own way to feel like you're doing something yes. and it doesn't have to be huge. Yes, completely agree. Well, yeah, Jack says it said it really nicely when I waffled for ages and then he just instantly found the words to make it really clear is he said making it more relatable makes it more attainable 
And Sherelle was saying that there's many approaches to relating to nature. There's no formula and mm. there's no prescription about how you might become somebody who does engage with nature. But Sherelle yeah. actually distinguishes that by saying that there's various approaches to nature as well. And there's a, yeah. there is a distinction to what we've just been saying there. Well, while we were talking to Sherelle, something else I was thinking about, I'm pretty sure there's groups out there also for people who have access needs. There is provision out there for people. And I think what you're saying is it could be that people who have mobility issues and it could be that there'll be mental health groups as well. And I mm. certainly know that there's um, there's horse riding opportunities for people who have physical disabilities. What I find just to sort of like go sideways, digress a little bit is that there doesn't seem to be a joined up picture. If somebody said, I'm going to look at the whole of the UK and I'm going to see all of these provisions. So Sherelle's group will be there, the black girls hiking, the, the disability groups, the mental health groups. It would be lovely to go onto the map. And here we go. This is where Dormouse comes in. Great segue, Judith. <laughs> so, so Dormouse is actually one of these conduits. So if you go onto the Dormouse's mapping system, mm. you would actually see these provisions should they be on there so put them onto Dormouse's website yeah so I guess if you're listening to this and you know of any groups doing work that like that we're talking about that grants access to a wider range of people if you know of any groups or are part of any groups that definitely get in touch with Dormouse yes. isn't it this thing of joined up thinking is one of my favorite approaches to everything you know a holistic approach. It's really interesting about the thinking about it being joined up because Dormouse mentions that the environmental group in East London has joined up with two other greening organisations. Mm -hmm. Dormouse raises this as being an opportunity for these green corridors, which is such a, a, a potentially important thing for everybody to join up. So if listeners don't know about it, it would mean that you maybe would join a, an organisation and you would have this web all over the UK where one organisation, which is protecting that particular area, joins to another, joins to another, and actually nature in its own way will find mm. these pathways these conduits across the UK that's something that's very attainable if you look at Jack Sherell and Dormouse and it's kind mm. of the thing, thing I think I was talking about or we were talking about in episode three is that they had an idea and they ran with it you and I are finding it really hard to describe what that kind of motivation is. And yeah. so it's kind of, you you know, the, the American term is it's a can-do attitude. And in yeah. fact, there are, there's no synonyms in the dictionary for can-do. The only things that I can think of have got a sort of business connotation, like entrepreneur or yeah. something like that. It's just gross. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it just doesn't, doesn't suit this. So whatever it is, it is open to anybody. So, and this is what we're hoping that these three guests are going to tickle your thinking about it. Go, oh, I, I could do that. And it really doesn't matter what you do. It's the fact that you create some kind of activity, event or whatever. And what you're actually doing is you're feeding back into the building, the conversation, you're being aware, you're being thoughtful. And it goes right back to um, that quote, how can you love and protect something you don't know about? I guess all of it feels like it comes down to awareness or 
being conscious as Sherelle kept using that term as well and Jack talked about awareness and caring you care for it by being aware of it and then that then builds the conversation as you start with your awareness or consciousness of something and then you communicate that you share it yeah exactly that's it's that simple building the conversation you share it yeah Thank you for inviting me into this project and this world. And I've, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Miriam, thank you very much for um, accepting and for joining me because there is no way that I could have done it without you in any way. It's been such a, uh, quite a joyous, actually, interaction. Well, I've learned so much. I've learned a lot from you. I've learned well, likewise. Yeah. 100% likewise. Yeah. yeah. And I've learned so much from the research that we've done. Mm. I'm actually a different person now. I'm very pleased about that. Uh, because, you know, as you get older, you kind of, you think, one of the worries is that you're going to become very set in your ways. And I feel, I feel broken down and, 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 and rebuilt. Well, that's the best. <laughs> it is the best. <laughs> Breaking down is always a wonderful opportunity to rebuild. We should say goodbye for the moment, but we will be uh, we will be in touch. And I'm sending lots of love. Yeah, lots of love to you too, Jada. Okay, and to and to everybody, and a very happy new year for 2021. It's a year of more uncertainty than one might expect, but we can do it. <laughs> very key. <laughs> And we we wouldn't want to come to the end and not give credit to some people who have played a part in these four podcasts. I'm starting off with our lovely audio producer, Alistair Kellaway. And Alistair, we hope to meet you one day. The great voice of Daniel Houdon for reading the quotes. And Daniel, my apologies if that's not how to pronounce your name. Our three inspiring guests, Jack Badams, the Dormouse that roared, Sherelle Harding, Much appreciated funding from the Arts Council England Lottery Fund that gave Miriam and I the the space to make these deep dives into the subjects and to develop us as artists within the project. Sherelle's promo song used in the interview was made by Daniela D uh, called Oxlade Away Remix and the promo video is by Ian James Bradley. Jack Badham's audio clips are his own. All other music was original to Miriam Gould, composed, sung and played beautifully by herself. Extra soundscapes were from Mitch Bagley. The graphics for The Fateful Tale of Chesapeake Bay were by Atio Linklater Design Partnership. Fish Tales, and original idea for the podcast by Judith Ankatel. And we'd like to thank the good-natured and invaluable support and mentoring from artists Kim Plowright and Rebecca Ford, from Christopher Finn at DC Thompson for his podcasting Savoir Faire. And my personal thanks to curator Madeline Colley for her support and guidance. Thanks to Mercia Smith for extra research and bouncing ideas and to supportive family members for their feedback. Final credit to Onka in Brighton for creating Remembrance Day for Lost Species 11 years ago, giving us the opportunity to explore and mourn 
the stories of extinct and critically endangered species, cultures and lifeways once a year on November the 30th. Now I think Miriam has a little something special for us. It's the morning after big storm, Storm Bella, and I'm trudging through my my field in Somerset, inspecting the damage along the hedgerows, and um, sun's just breaking through the clouds. It's nice and warm in the sun. Uh, it's surprisingly still, so you can hear the road, but also that little runoff stream down the bottom. And uh, I think I'm just, I've been inspired by Pharrell, I think, as I'm walking, and I feel like singing, singing a song from my childhood. Um, I hope you don't mind me taking you with me while I do it. upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me where trouble melts like lemon drops away from the chimney tops that's where you'll find me Fly beyond the rainbow. Yeah. 